0: Together Thanks
1: for listening to the KC Morning Show
2: Everything's running smoothly
1: Yo, 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 yo. What is going on? My name's Hartzell And Miss right here, It's your KC Morning Show Baby Hey, what's the word? Kansas City! KC Morning Hoes, I'm not gonna lie to you. I am so excited for you to listen to this episode. One of the best we've done. I know I talk in superlatives. Everything is the best of all time. But legitimately, this is one of my favorite shows we have done. We're kicking things off on your Tuesday a little bit differently. You know, usually Tuesdays on your KC Morning Show. Myself, Professor Harvey K. He's a professor emeritus over at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Usually we take back America reclaiming that radical history well we're we're gonna do that i don't know why i'm making it seem like we're not going to be doing that that is happening but we're kicking off the show With some news And we got some homies here To explain said news We mentioned this a little bit In the intro yesterday But Starbucks We got two locations That are doing the damn thing Filing paperwork to unionize Baby So on the show today We've got Addie Wright We've got Chris Fielder They're gonna fill us in On everything I believe truly This is one of the biggest stories In Kansas City And it may go down As one of the biggest stories In Kansas City history And then we send it over To Professor Harvey K We take back America it's FDR month, ladies and gentlemen. And this speech right here, it, it goes almost too perfectly, especially after you hear this interview with Chris and Addy. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about what we got going on. My name's Hartzell. A good day to be a Kansas Cityan. We'll see you in the morning. Bye. That creed. A creed at the core
0: of every American whose story is not yet written. Yes, we can.
1: The KC Morning Show. Learning about plans, employees at two Starbucks locations in the Kansas City area have to unionize. The stores include one in Overland Park off of West 75th Street by I-35. The other is on the plaza.
3: Kansas City is seeing is right now part of a national uh, effort.
1: One of these times when we're talking to Chris and we're talking to Addy, we're going to be talking to him. As we're sipping a nice venti dirty chai, let's do that. Add, add a shot of espresso with a unionized Starbucks in Kansas City, also in OP. I speak as if it's already happened because this is gonna happen. We got Addie Wright. We have Chris Fielder. They are doing the damn thing, my friends. I appreciate you. Thank you for what you're doing. Welcome to the show.
3: It's awesome to be here. Thank you. Yeah,
1: thank you for having us. Y'all missed this off air. Addie's got a Red Hot Chili pepper shirt on, so we're best friends. And Chris has this Truman Defeats Dewey shirt. You know, everybody's seen the picture. Well, Chris, what what is your say on that top headline? The
3: newspaper is replaced with it's all bullshit.
1: It is all bullshit. And guess what? You two said, you know what? Enough of the bullshit. So who wants to go first? How do we get here to this amazing moment? Addie, take it away.
2: Well, I think I was first approached after they had already spoke to a few of the other baristas. Um, And at first, I really didn't think we would get this far because it all felt so vague, like what we needed to accomplish, who we were filing with. But then it just started to fall together so quickly after we got support from SBWU and we started talking with them. We formed our little organizing committee and we had our nice little document set up. So we were trying to keep track of who we needed to talk to, what everyone's opinion was on it, who wanted to stay anonymous, who wanted us to bring up what concerns. And from there, like it just started rolling and we got a lot of support and it was so much easier than I ever expected because everyone felt like this was a good mission even if they weren't sure if it was what was right you were still gonna try and do it and see if it
1: improved things for us so if that is our original trilogy here we are on the ground doing this thing in this moment we have filed that paperwork to become a union so give me the prequel story what is it about you all that said you know what this ain't working So many of us, we would take that and say, you know, well, it is what it is. You know, I want to keep my check. You all didn't brush this off. In fact, you got your homies to say we shouldn't be brushing this off. So where does that come from? Where's that that mindset start? Because it doesn't happen overnight.
3: Our story uh, really started with the Buffalo partners and the proving that they could do it. And when it started to spread across the country, I, I think the conversation became easier with partners in our store. The first time I heard the word union in the store was from a group of our high schoolers. And so we, we started looking into it. Yeah, the kids are all right. We started looking into it and um, I reached out to the union to see what we could do about it. And I think some of that fear went away because it had already been done. And even if people didn't know exactly what a union was, they knew something, they knew the word and... All they needed was a little bit of engagement to say, hey, we can do this too. What are the issues that are important to you? And there are a lot of issues that are important to us. Um, There's a lot of ways we would like to change our store. And making that front and center a really positive Starbucks message and making the connections with each other is how we we kept this up.
1: Yeah, so what are those demands. Let's call them what they are. They're demands, and you guys have earned those demands. So before we get into how you formulated what you want to have happen, what are they? Let's just go ahead and list them out right now, or at least some of the things that are your points of concern.
3: Well, we don't make enough to live in the Kansas City area. Uh, I started back at Starbucks at $12 an hour last November, and- You know, it just doesn't cut it in our community. Our store is not a safe place to work. Uh, We had a partner get a concussion from a leak that had been reported multiple times and went unfixed for months. That partner was out of work for almost two months. Our COVID security protocols just are basically non-existent. You can imagine how busy the plaza is during the holiday season. And when we're the only ones with masks in the store, um, you, you can see where this goes. And finally, our partners don't deserve to be stalked or sexually harassed, which we have a select few customers who have made a habit of doing
1: that. People will say, well, did you talk to your manager? Well, and then your manager will say, well, I didn't hear anything from corporate. So what has been the chain of, I guess, accountability up until this point? Has there been any at all?
2: Um, So I can speak on that because in my role, I'm one of the people who is responsible for reporting incidences or filing for maintenance. And we do everything we can. We file all the incident reports when we have disruptive customers or people who are harassing us. We follow it to the book. We're really good about reporting everything because our manager tells us, like, you, you need To get these in, because that's how corporate will pay attention and trespass these customers. If that's the steps we need to take, and it still feels like they tell us this isn't clear enough. Like we we can't trespass them off this, or "Mm, we're not really sure if this like violates our policy. We can't do that yet. You can't ask that customer to leave yet. And with the maintenance request, I can check in on our iPad and see like are these being filled? Some of them just run on for days at a time. Or maintenance comes in and they fix it but it's not fixed and it breaks a day later or most recently we are still dealing with that leak behind our bar that caused our partner's concussion because it seems like every week there's a new spot that's leaking and they told us that they can't figure out where it's coming from so at this point there's so much wrong with this store that we can't fix it one at a time like I can file all the reports I want but there's so much work that needs to be done it's almost like we
1: just need to completely rebuild from the ground up. When I hear you explain that, and then I hear, Chris, your bullet points of what is wrong, I mean, they are all connected it's not like it's one thing and then you check that off the list and then that thing that's a part of the store is now fixed forever it's like the domino effect if that ain't working well this whole thing is just not going to be operating smoothly or efficiently or most importantly safely does that make any sense or am i grasping at straws here no no
3: you got it you got it and the thing is this is part of the starbucks experience which is why other partners everywhere are doing this the safety issues might be different from store to store or the specifics might be but But for example, the partners in Overland Park work in a really, really small store with limited parking spaces. And they're being asked to walk two blocks to park their cars or across five lanes of busy traffic. And, you know, for for some of their partners, um, that's a safety risk. They, They don't want to do that late at night when they're getting off the clock. I mean, our stores leak or their store's parking issues are two pieces of a nationwide puzzle of Starbucks not sitting down at the table and hearing what we each need out of our stores.
1: You said nationwide and you're you're so right. I, I wish we would be saying more about that in a moment that I believe maybe well, I believe we're making it into a movement. And I gotta feel like that's that's gotta be pumping you all up. But that being said, the years and years of union busting and just the stigmatization of unions and and you all now are are the face of this thing in Kansas City. I guess I just I want people to know the kind of risk that you all are actually taking, not just in general, but the personal risk that you all are taking.
3: They don't have enough district managers across the country to attack every city at the same time. We went from 39 stores nationally that were filed yesterday to 55 in one day. If we keep up at this pace, they won't be able to keep up and tell us no.
2: The other thing I want to add to that nationwide movement is I'm trying not to read comments on the internet about this, but I saw a couple of people saying they're already overpriced. Things are already good there. And I, that can be true, but just because it's not already good doesn't mean it can't be better. And the way I see it is we might be a mega corporation and we already have pretty progressive benefits, but if we can do this and be the voice for the smaller corporations and the small businesses that feel like they can't achieve this because they don't have the reach Starbucks does. I mean, that's ultimately the impact I want to have is that we can set this ball rolling on the larger labor movement and show people from corporations that are not as loud as Starbucks that they can do this too, and that they also deserve a better living.
1: Unfortunately, we see people who are in those same positions as what you all are in and instead of it being a let's do this together You know what? I'm with you It is inherently a struggle against us and we should be fighting against was really doing this to us as we talk about the comment section what has been some of your reactions you've gotten. Good, bad, indifferent. I can't imagine it's indifferent. Everyone's got an opinion on this one.
3: My favorite was uh, the blogger who said that Starbucks basically sells ice cream.
2: (laughs) Another one I've been seeing is people saying, this is just going to make it cost more. And I guess my response to that is kind of, consider the person before the product because when you start caring more about the cost of what you're consuming over the person who's creating it like that's how people get exploited in labor and that goes a lot deeper than just starbucks you know so i guess my response to those is just have a little compassion and care more about the people behind it instead of the product and the corporation that faces you
1: so what are our next steps, my friends, what do we do? We got the OP store, they're they're next in line. The Plaza location, that, that email's been sent.
3: <laughs> yeah, so we're gonna have to wait a little bit and see uh, that Starbucks has stalled this everywhere. So they're gonna try and stall us too, probably, and hold hearings and, and see... Like what they can figure out about all the legal stuff, but in a couple months we vote, and if we win, then we have our union, and they have to they have to talk to us about what we want. So in the meantime, we have a lot we can do. Uh, there's a whole big city of Starbucks locations, and there's a lot more coffee than just Starbucks. So we got a lot of room for growth.
1: What excites you the most? I mean, just hearing that sentence, I got a little goosebumpy. Yeah. In a month we vote. Like that's ah, that's that is that's awesome, Addie, I guess. What are you most psyched about? Is it the fact that you're winning this thing? You're going to win this thing? Is it the fact that you are a part of this bigger-than-yourself movement? Is it? Is it what? You tell me.
2: I think it is the aspect of being part of a movement bigger than myself. And on the personal level, some of my really, really close friends at that store who have a lot more experience with Starbucks than I do truly believe that this is what's right. So I'm really excited to give them what they deserve and be able to be a voice for them since they didn't feel comfortable speaking up it's
3: already started
1: Addie, you in this game for a little bit you're gonna be doing this for a while (laughs) um
2: i thought about that last night i was like this is gonna get a little bit bigger and i i don't know if i have the time to commit to that but i'm i'm gonna do what i can maybe make some stops give them a little whisper and be like hey i'm from the plaza you need
1: anything? What can we do? What can we go to help? Uh, maybe it's just we should go all head to the Plaza branch and go grab some coffee today. What 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 would you suggest we do? How can we help? I'd say that we just need help
3: keeping Starbucks accountable. I mean, they're not going to roll over and play dead. They'll want to have one-on-one meetings with us or 2 on 1 or 3 on 1 and tell us why this is bad for us. They'll probably want to threaten us and say you could lose your benefits, you could lose XYZ. It's all lies. Just being supportive of the people uh, who are in the store, who are working at the store, going in and ordering a union yes coffee uh, would be helpful. And just remember that even if you're not supportive of what we're doing here, we are people and that goes a long way. Just keeping that in mind.
2: I agree with Chris and I think also just helping share our story. So people understand it goes past, you know, some greedy kids that want to be paid more to make coffee. So just sharing the complexities of our story past things like pay or people's first thoughts when they think of unions
1: i just want to say thank you all because i also know that you all have now put your face out there you put your name and it's that important and just know that we have your back and please 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 come back on this show as we get more and more updates yeah we can't wait. Addy Wright, Chris Fielder, they are working to unionize the Starbucks over at the Country Club Plaza, but also the location and OP that is up next. And hopefully many, many more to come. And like they say, go get that Union Yes coffee. In fact, just go do it now. I mean, it's early enough. Go get that coffee. Chris, Addy, keep fighting. We got this. Solidarity. Solidarity. Thanks for having us.
2: Solidarity.
3: On January 11, 1970, victory belonged
0: to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News Special Report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots?
1: I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue.
4: Daryl Motley awaits and the Kansas City Royals are world champions.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Professor Harvey K, my brother. Professor Emeritus over at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Me here in KC. You know, usually we do a little pre-show banter. It's usually football related. But, you know, Professor K and I, we we had a chat off air, and we just said, f*** it. But you know what? Solidarity in that next year could be our year. It, it could be, even if Rodgers is not the quarterback. Can I also say something that I've learned about Professor Harvey K in the last minute? Harvey K is a Star Wars fan. I have Star Wars tattoos everywhere, and we've been doing this for, what, 10 weeks?
4: I thought the X-Wing... Was just incredible. I was born in 49. What would I be? 28, 27, not even yet turned 28. I do remember that as 27. We got into the Mustang, the dash and the, the model that I had was just fabulous. And I swear to you that I thought I was getting into an X Wing. Fortunately, I gave myself about 10 minutes before I got out on the highway just to come back to Earth on that one.
1: <laughs> and what a through line that we have because a lot of Star Wars, a lot of pop culture, you know, I don't think they recognize the radical history of it all. I mean, think about the Star Wars story. The empire that fell from within, but it was a slow, a slow cancer. And just like the rebels and the rebellion reclaim the radical history of the galaxy, Harvey K., you know what we do every Tuesday? We take back that radical history of America, my
4: brother. And this week continues another week of FDR month. We decided, Hartzell and I, that we're going to be dealing with the period 1937 to 1940 of FDR right now. And there's quite a few really good speeches. A lot of people don't know the speeches in that period because it's basically not quite as dynamic as the original New Deal initiatives. It's not quite as dynamic as the 1934 midterm elections. It's not quite as dynamic as the 36 landslide in which FDR and the Democrats just walloped the Republicans all the more. But it is the case that he gave some really fine speeches in these years. And we decided that I would say a few things about these years, maybe note a few of the best quotes from the speeches of that time, but then focus on one speech in particular, which we'll get to, a 1940 campaign speech for his unprecedented third run for the presidency back before there was an amendment to the Constitution prohibiting anyone from holding office as president three times, more than twice, that is. And this was a speech, when we get to it, it was delivered in Cleveland, the city of Cleveland. And I can tell you, the title I gave it in the collection, FDR and Democracy, is we are characters in this living book of democracy, but we are also its author. And when we get to it, you'll see that It's a very distinctly, almost uniquely FDR speech, because in many ways, FDR was the forerunner to not me, us. And we'll get to that in a bit. But first, I want to point out that he won by a landslide, FDR, in 1936. And I want to just point out, give you an example of what I mean. He picked up 83% of Southern white Protestants, 81% of Northern Catholics, 85% of Jewish Americans, and 71% of African Americans who forever had been, when they were able to identify with a political party, they were with the party of Lincoln. And FDR changed that altogether. There was this massive move by African Americans and many others from the Republican to the Democratic camp. And in 1936, it became all the more evident just how massive that migration was. He received nearly 28 million votes that year versus 16.7 million for the Republican nominee. Now, in the end, the Democrats ended up holding 76 seats in the Senate and 331 in the House. So FDR had good reason to believe he could pull off a third New Deal. Remember the first New Deal of 33? The second New Deal of 35? He figured now we can go all out. However, we should remind ourselves that in 1935, that the Supreme Court had found unconstitutional both the National Industrial Recovery Act and the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which in itself didn't devastate FDR. But his concern was that when he was going to proceed to offer even more progressive legislation that year, which he did, that ultimately the Supreme Court would knock those down. So in 35, FDR and the Democrats enacted Social Security and the National Labor Relations Act. But the corporate lawyers told their clients, the the richest people in America, that really they weren't laws yet. They weren't laws until they were tested by the Supreme Court, which is bullshit. They're laws when they're passed, okay? So anyhow, he was seriously concerned what the Supreme Court might do. So he had a plan that he would literally enlarge the court, FDR. He would get Congress to approve enlarging the court. And he said, well, what we should do is these... These judges, justices are getting rather old. So how about every time one of the justices reaches 70 years of age, we add someone to the court to help spread the burden around? Well, all hell broke loose when he proposed this. The Republicans accused him of wanting to be a dictator. All too many Democrats sort of fell into line with that argument. I think that polls indicated most Americans supported FDR, but the Congress held back. In any case, it cost him a great deal. And what it definitely did, what really cost him was this. It drove together the Republicans, who were the conservative party of the day, as they have been ever since, and the Southern Democrats, the Jim Crow white supremacist Southern Democrats, created an informal, essentially conservative coalition. The Republicans speaking on behalf of Capitol and Wall Street and big, big industries, and Southern Democrats speaking for themselves on behalf of racism and segregation white supremacy. So there was no, they called it court packing. There was no enlargement of the court at the time. There was a certain irony, however, he would get some elements of a third new deal. The WPA really did help to transform America. And in 1938, FDR and the Democrats secured the Fair Labor Standards Act, which has been really important in terms of securing rights and wages in the workplace. And it abolished child labor. Moreover, In 1937, the Supreme Court found both the Social Security Act and the National Labor Relations Act constitutional. In fact, listen to this. FDR, in the course of of that year and the couple of years following, would get to appoint seven new justices of the court and elevate, in quotes, the honorary New Dealer Harlan Fisk Stone to chief justice. They called him the honorary new dealer because he was strongly behind FDR, all of which initiated nothing less than a constitutional revolution in which the court increasingly gave priority to democratic or human rights over property rights. And this is important because even though it didn't yet radically change race relations in America, it literally set the course for where the court would eventually go. So for example, in the early 1950s, when Eisenhower becomes president and he gets to appoint the Supreme Court Justice, Earl Warren, not even knowing how progressive Earl Warren would be, this Roosevelt court that then becomes essentially the Warren court. And of course it's the Warren court, which in the 1960s, well, in 1954, ruled in favor of desegregation of schools, my dad took a
1: shot of the building for the Brown versus Board of Education case. He presented it to Michelle
4: Obama when she came in town about, oh, cool.
1: this would have been 2014, 2015. That's very nice. Yeah, Very
4: nice. And this is also the court that sort of literally brought an end to school prayer. The 60s did see, in many ways, a courtroom revolution. So what we find is that it, at his inaugural address, he says something which really gives you a sense of what he wanted to do. He wanted to declare war on poverty, as Lyndon Johnson would later do. He says, but here is the challenge to our democracy. In this nation, I see tens of millions of its citizens, a substantial part of the whole population, who at this very moment are denied the greater part of what the very lowest standards of today call the necessities of life. I see millions of families trying to live on income so meager that the Paul of family disaster hangs over them day by day. I see millions whose daily lives in city and on farm continue under conditions labeled indecent by the so-called polite society. I see millions denied education, recreation, and the opportunity to better their lot and the lot of their children. I see millions lacking the means to buy the products of farm and factory and by their poverty denying work and productiveness to many other millions. And here's the key line. I see one third of a nation ill-housed, ill-clad, ill-nourished. That that sentence, by the way, is is very indicative of what FDR wanted to combat and, and go to war against in his second term as president. Now, another speech I want to call people's attention to before we got up to 1940, two of them from 1938. In 1938, FDR decided he'd had enough of the most reactionary members of the Democratic Party. And he was going to try to purge the Democratic Party of reactionaries. So he launched his own personal campaign of trying to drive the the reactionaries out of the party by going around the country, by making radio addresses and emphasizing the imperative of people to vote liberal. Well, the most interesting of those speeches, maybe not my favorite, but it's close to it, when he goes to Gainesville, Georgia, not Gainesville, Florida, but Gainesville, Georgia, On March 23rd, 1938, I titled this speech, and you'll see why in a minute, there is little difference between the feudal system and the fascist system. He's going to basically point a finger at the ruling class of Georgia. What he tells his audience is that people in the South are poor. They're living poor and poorly. And because of all of this, this feudal-like system in the South, It's a drag on the nation's efforts to overcome the Great Depression. And what he says is, Georgia and the Lower South may just as well face facts, simple facts. Most men and women who work for wages in this whole area get wages that are far too low. And let us well remember that buying power means many other kinds of better things, better schools, better health, better hospitals, better highways. These things will not come to us in the South if we oppose progress. If we believe in our hearts that the feudal system is still the best system. This was really also pointing a finger at those southern landholders who held so many black and white farmers under a tenancy system, sharecropping systems that really were a kind of feudal order. My great grandmother was a sharecropper in Arkansas. And here's the thing. Now, keep in mind, late 1930s, fascism is on the march in Europe. Italy is fascist. Germany is ruled by the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler, another fascist party, and other countries in Europe are falling to fascism. When you come down to it, there is little difference between the feudal system, unstated, here in the South, and the fascist system. If you believe in the one, you lean to the other. Now, that is, by the way, when it comes to political audacity, forget the audacity of hope. This is blunt, brutal audacity. When the ruling class of Georgia is sitting probably on the podium with
1: him. I see so many parallels now. I mean, you could say with the rise of big tech and all these folks who really do own our means of labor, at least it seems like that now, we are kind of living in this new feudal system, especially as fascism is kind of taken off
4: again. Well, you'll like this. This paragraph we're going to get to right now says it all. It's November 4th, 1938, the night before the midterm congressional elections. And FDR goes on radio, national radio, to try to get people to vote liberal and to try to purge the party of eight reactionaries. I think he got one of them s- sent home, but I don't think the other seven. It, it was nearly impossible to pull it off, frankly, okay? The black population couldn't vote in the South. So, yeah, this is a radio address from Hyde Park, New York on November 4th, 1938. And he's talking about how the imperative of voting for liberals, that would be the counterpart today of saying vote for progressives, which would have included real progressives, the labor progressives. And he gets to this paragraph. I love this paragraph. And fortunately, I discovered if I edited a bit, I can tweet it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) as of today, fascism and communism and old line Tory republicanism are not threats to the continuation of our form of government. If you want to put this in blunt terms, you could have said, as of today, Hitler and Stalin. That's what we mean. Fascism and communism are not threats to the continuation of our form of government. But I venture the, the challenging statement that if American democracy ceases to move forward as a living force seeking day and night by peaceful means to better the lot of our citizens, then fascism and communism aided unconsciously, perhaps, by old line Tory republicanism, will grow in strength in our land. He was drawing a line, fascism and communism, that is totalitarianism, to reactionary and conservative forces in America, by which he meant the most conservative Republicans who stood in the way of the progress of working people and decidedly the Southern Democrats who stood in the way of black and white working people, from being able to make a decent living and provide for their families and basically running a regime down south, which was essentially fascist. Now, the war begins in 1939. The United States does not enter the war, but I can tell you that FDR and most Americans were clearly on the side of Britain and France. France will be overrun, but in the case of Britain and its Commonwealth countries, most America, overwhelming the American sympathies were there. Americans did not necessarily want to go to war, though there were polls that showed that if the only way to get rid of Hitler or, for that matter, the Japanese threat in the Pacific, you go to war. In the meantime, for FDR, it was a matter of sort of campaigning on, if you like, at two fronts. On one hand, he's got a campaign to enable Americans to see the threat. Of fascism and japanese imperialism but on the other hand he has to continue he wants to sustain the dynamic of the new deal he still wants to fight poverty he still wants to empower workers he still wants to enhance american education this is this is what it's about and he decides he's going to run for a third term launches the campaign in 1940 he's on the campaign trail he's in cleveland ohio november 2nd 1940. And he gives a speech, as I think I mentioned before, titled, We Are Characters in This Living Book of Democracy, But We Are Also Its Author. I love this speech, and I think you'll all see what I mean. I love this speech because FDR really does, I I, I hate to reduce it to a hashtag again, but it is not me, us, that we're going to hear in this. So let's get to it, right, Hartzell? Let's go to it. Let's do it. I'll start off. Just to set the stage for all of this, and then we'll hand over back and forth, okay? This generation of Americans, FDR said, is living in a tremendous moment of history. The surge of events abroad has made some few doubters among us. Ask, is this the end of a story that has been told? Is the book of democracy now to be closed and placed away upon the dusty shelves of time? My answer is this. All we have known of the glories of democracy, its freedom, its efficiency as a mode of living, its ability to meet the aspirations of the common man. All these are merely an introduction to the greatest story of a more glorious future. We Americans of today, all of us, we are characters in this living book of democracy, but we are also its author. It falls upon us now to say whether the chapters that are to come will tell a story of retreat or a story of continued advance. I believe that the American people will say forward. Now, there's a line in the speech that I want to highlight, but I also want to say something about it. We in this nation of many states have found the way by which men of many racial origins may live together in peace. Now, that's an aspirational sentence. Let's face it. African-Americans in the South are being treated, in most cases, like not even second-class citizens. Mexican, and I say Mexican because in the 30s they were still referred to as Mexicans and not Mexican-Americans, but Mexican-Americans in the Southwest were being treated in a similar fashion. White, and we shouldn't leave this out, white tenant farmers, white sharecroppers shared the experiences of black sharecroppers. And by the way, there was a Southern Tenants Farmers Union in the South, which was biracial. That's important to understand. And out in the West, it was the case that the farm workers of the West were diverse, not only Mexican-American and white, poor, but also Filipinos and Chinese and others. But it is the case... That if we if we leave that as a sentence as if it was speaking a fact, that would not be true. It's an aspirational sentence. But then let's go let's go to the parts of the speech which I think are so dynamic and so characteristic of FDR. Take it away, Hartzell. Our strength
1: is measured not only in terms of the might of our armaments, it is measured not only in terms of our horsepower of our machines. The true measure of our strength lies deeply embedded in the social and economic justice of the system in which we live. For you can build ships and tanks and planes and guns galore, but they will not be enough. You must place behind them an invincible faith in the institutions which they have been built to defend. The dictators have devised a new system, or rather, a modern streamlined version of a very ancient system. But Americans will have none of that. They will never submit to domination or influence by Nazism or communism. They will hesitate
4: to support those of whom they are not absolutely sure. I want to remind everyone that at 1940... The Allies had not taken full shape in all of this. Keep in mind, the United States is not in the war. Britain and France and France had been overrun by the Germans. What we have to remember is in 1940, was it in 3940, there was the Hitler-Stalin pact. The Nazis and the communists, they were united in an alliance against everyone so they could divide up Poland for a start. So that basically you can imagine fascism would rule in Central and Western Europe. And communism would be imposed upon so much of Eastern Europe. When the Hitler-Stalin pact ends, when Hitler, fortunately but stupidly, turns on on Stalin, what he does ends up creating is a two-front war, Britain and France on the one side eventually, and Soviet Union on the other. For Americans are determined
1: to retain for themselves the right of free speech, free religion, free assembly, and the right which lies at the basis of all of them the right to choose the officers of their own government in free elections. We intend to keep our freedom, to defend it from attacks from without and against corruption from within. We shall defend it against the forces of dictatorship, whatever disguises and false faces they may wear. But we have learned that freedom in itself is not enough. Freedom of speech is of no use to a man who has nothing to say. Freedom of worship is of no use to a man who has lost his God. Democracy, To be dynamic, must provide for its citizens opportunity as well as freedom. We of this government have seen a rebirth of dynamic
4: democracy in America in these past few years. Yeah, I mean, now we're going to really get into it, okay? That's just beautifully set the stage. And by the way, don't you love that line? Freedom in itself is not enough. The New Deal, he says, FDR, has been the creation of you, the American people. Here we go with the not me us. He's revving these people up to realize, he's revving American citizens up to realize this was not the doing of a president and an administration. It wasn't even the doing of the Democratic Party, it was their doing. So he continues You provided work for free men and women in America who could find no work. You used the powers of government to stop the depletion of the topsoil of America, to stop the decline in farm prices, to stop foreclosures of homes and farms. You wrote into the law the right of working men and women to bargain collectively, and you set up the machinery to enforce that right. You turned to the problems of youth and age. You took your children out of the factory and shop and outlawed the right of anyone to exploit the labor of those children. And you gave to those children the chance to prepare in body and spirit, the molding of an even fuller and brighter day for themselves. For the youth of the land, you provided chances for jobs and for education. And for old age itself, You provided security and rest. You made safe the banks, which hold your savings. You advanced to other objectives. You gained them. You consolidated them and advanced again. Now we are asked to stop in our tracks. We are asked to turn about, to march back into the wilderness from which we came. He's referring to the Democrats in the South, maybe, but he's decidedly talking about the Republicans. Of course, we will not turn backward. He says, we will continue, and he goes on, we will continue, and he goes on, we will continue. Hartzell? For there lies the road to democracy that is strong. Of course,
1: we intend to preserve and build up the land of this country, its soil, its forests, and its rivers, all of the resources with which God has endowed the people of the United States. Of course, we intend to continue and build up the bodies and the minds of men, women, and children of the nation through democratic education and a democratic program for health. For there lies the road to democracy that is strong. Of course, we intend to continue our efforts to protect our system of private enterprise and private property, but to protect it from monopoly of financial control. Of course, we shall continue our efforts to prevent economic dictatorship as well as political dictatorship. Of course, we intend to continue to build up the morale of this country, not as blind obedience to some leader, but as the expression of confidence in the deeply ethical principles upon which this nation and its democracy were founded. For there lies the road to democracy that is strong. The progress of our country, as well as the defense of our country, requires national unity. And all the forces
4: of evil shall not prevail against it. Excellent. And he says... For so it is written in the book. Remember, we are the authors. And so it is written in the moral law. And so it is written in the promise of a great era of world peace. He doesn't leave it as what we're going to do. He also wants to project a vision. By the way, the greatest failing in many ways of the Democratic Party for all too many years. Well, no, one of the greatest failings, not the greatest. Their greatest failing is they turn their back on the working class and the labor movement for too many, too many years. But it's also the case they literally have failed to cultivate a vision of where they would lead America in the future. And FDR never failed to offer a vision. He did it back in 32 when he talked about an economic declaration of rights. He offered it again in 1936 when he talked about those economic royalists that we had to overthrow, you know, the great rendezvous of a generation with destiny. And here he says, it is the destiny of this American generation to point the road to the future for all the world to see. It is our prayer that all lovers of freedom may join us, the anguished common people of this earth for whom we seek to light the path. I see in America where factory workers are not discarded after they reach their prime, where there is no endless chain of poverty from generation to generation, where impoverished farmers and farmhands do not become homeless wanderers, where monopoly does not make youth a beggar for a job. I see an America whose rivers and valleys and lakes, hills and streams and plains, the mountains over our land and our nature's wealth deep under the earth are protected as the rightful heritage of all the people. I see an America where small business really has a chance to flourish and grow. I see an America of great cultural and educational opportunity for all its people. I see an America where the income from the land shall be implemented and protected by a government determined to guarantee to those who hoe it A fair share in the national income, an America where the wheels of trade and private industry continue to turn to make the goods for America, where no businessman can be stifled by the harsh hand of monopoly, and where the legitimate profits of legitimate business are the fair reward of every businessman, big and little in all the nation. I see an America with peace in the ranks of labor, an America where the workers are really free, and through their great unions, undominated by any outside force or by any dictator within. That's the kind of speech. I mean, I don't know why the Democrats don't require their candidates to read those kinds of speeches. I know I can hear a number of people saying, because they really don't want those kinds of changes. They really are not just conservative, but in some cases reactionary in the face of the likes of Bernie Sanders' social democracy. Well, nevertheless, We have the legacy of FDR and words like that should be embraced, embraced by all. I know I can hear people say, but look, FDR didn't do anything to stop lynching. He's got sins galore, terrible, tragic mistakes that he made, but the promise and the vision he offered, which African-Americans and Japanese-Americans and all other Americans who might not have been in the ruling class have themselves embraced and should not let go of as a promise. In fact... I think one of the great things about America, I'm going to get patriotic here, is that those who may have had the least reason to be proud refused to be excluded from the promise. They organized, they fought, they didn't always win, but they would not be denied the promise. And that probably is the central story of the radical history of America. The other thing I want to say is it's it's worth noting is FDR... Appointed as attorney general in in this late 1930s into 40, a man named Frank Murphy, who had been the governor of Michigan when the auto workers in Flint, Michigan occupied the factories in one particular plant. I guess it was a Chevy plant. The corporate bosses, the wealthiest people in America among them, called FDR saying, wow, you got to do something. And And they called the governor of Michigan. Well, this governor of Michigan, who, by the way, FDR was very good friends with, he called out the National Guard. But guess what? He had the National Guard surround the occupied factory with their bayonets pointing out to protect the workers inside. Yeah. How about that?
1: Imagine Biden doing that during
4: striketober that we just had. Imagine or just showing up. Exactly. So this man, Frank Murphy, he was appointed attorney general. And he launched the Civil Liberties Division, which would become the Civil Rights Division, to investigate the troubles that labor was having with the bosses and also with the intention of pursuing prosecutions in the South against those involved in lynchings. Now, that was utterly tough and difficult to pursue, but the precedent was set. He would later, soon enough, appoint Murphy to the Supreme Court itself. This is what I mean by the Roosevelt Court. The is issued in these words, Roosevelt fought for much of this stuff, didn't go far enough, he made tragic mistakes, but he is a great aid to you and me, Hartzell, to take back America. I want
1: to finish it up with that last paragraph from the speech. I, I, I feel like I would be doing a disservice if we didn't mention that last part of this speech, Hart, because he says that there is a great storm raging now. Yeah, you take it, definitely, read that. A storm that makes things harder for the world. And that storm, which did not start in this land of ours, is the true reason that I would like to stick by the people of ours until we reach the clear, sure footing ahead. We will make it, he said. We will make it before the next term is over. We will make it, and the world, we hope, will make it too. Our future belongs to us Americans. I love that, Harvey,
4: I love that. Yeah, and I wanna say very clearly that The likes of Martin Luther King heard these words and then further educated by A. Philip Randolph in 1944 when Randolph came into residence for a brief while at Morehouse College when the precocious Martin Luther King teenager was there as a student. I mean, these things would literally influence King. King's father was very much a pro-FDR guy in spite of the state of the Democratic Party in the South. I'll just leave it at this as well. I think I've said this before. In 1940, a textile worker in North Carolina sent a letter to the White House, along with hundreds of thousands of others. I love this. And it's a very politically incorrect statement these days, but I have to quote it. He wrote to the president and he said, you get it. You get it. You know that my boss is a son of a And if I can know it, I mean, it's fascinating to think about this. So, you know, a Starbucks here and a Starbucks there. And people could say, "Eh, you know, given how many Starbucks locations there are, what does that tell us? What does it mean? Well, the list is growing. There's a wave of Starbucks unionization efforts. And if people think that that doesn't mean anything, remember, winning produces more winning. Workers get organized. They talk to other workers. Other workers see the advantage of labor unions. Maybe, just maybe, we're entering a year of 2022, which Bernie Sanders wants us to call a year of solidarity. Well, my
1: brother, our year of solidarity continues. Why don't you tell these folks what we got going on next week?
4: Okay, so here we are on the verge of World War II. But before the United States enters the war, FDR will offer a speech. First, a fireside chat calling on Americans to turn the United States into the arsenal of democracy. Right after he has won his third term as president in November 40. Then in January, in his State of the Union address, he will offer possibly the finest of his speeches ever, maybe not the most radical, but one of the finest, the four freedom speech in which he will call upon Americans to embrace and pursue freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And it's not out of the question. We may just spend the next time on that speech, just that speech alone. I think we might have to, Harvey. I think we may have to. Because I want to remind everyone, a little book salesmanship here, (laughs) that before I did FDR on democracy, I wrote the fight for the four freedoms. What made FDR and the greatest generation truly great? The most progressive of presidents, the most progressive of generations, as far as I'm concerned. We'll talk about that speech and how it literally it is the speech that leads me sometimes to think it should not be called the greatest generation. It should be called the Four Freedoms generation. Harvey K., do you got any pump-ups for me? One word, solidarity, brothers and sisters. Professor Harvey K., my brother, I love you, and we will chat next week. You bet. Can't wait. There's
1: power in the factory, power in the line
0: power in the high. We don't stand There is power In a union Now the lessons Of the past we all With workers' blood The strikes of the bosses We must fight for From the cities And the farmlands To trenches full of mud All is who been The bosses wiser. sir? Brothers and our sisters from many far off lands, there is power in our union. Now I long for the morning that they realize brutality and unjust laws cannot defeat us. But who defend the workers who cannot organize when the bosses send their lackeys out to cheat us? Devil for